Chapter 1. Study in the Book of Hebrews. The Book of Hebrews was addressed to Jews who knew the Old Testament, but any Gentile, non-Jew, can understand it as well. All Christians should know and understand that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. This is why we shouldn't neglect any scripture just because we think it was addressed to someone else. Studying scripture should be a lifelong practice for every Christian who wants to know and understand God in a very deep way. I heard it said that the Bible is a love letter from God to mankind, and I believe it is true. Our study will be in the English Standard Version, ESV. With that said, let us start our study in this wonderful book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. These first couple of verses lay out for us the before and the now application of Scripture. In the past, when the Old Testament was written God raised up men to relay God's word to those who went before us. In this case, it was the Jewish fathers who were used. We are told in the first chapter of Romans that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But something changed when God sent his son on the scene, he is now speaking to us differently. He is speaking to us by his son. And right at the start, he tells us who his son is. He is the one that is spoken of in the Old Testament that has been made heir of all things, and he is the one that created the world. He goes on to tell us that he is God in the flesh who explains God in his fullness. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. While Christ walked on the face of the earth we are told that when he became flesh and dwelt among us, that we saw his glory, and this glory was as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. No one above every name and at that name, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. For to which of the angels did God ever say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. God's own words in Psalms 2 speaks of this, as for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus Christ is so far above everything and everybody that we find that even angels are to worship him. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Why is this? Of the angels he says. He makes his angels winds. And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun he says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Back in Psalms 2, it continued to say, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth! Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
blessed are all who take refuge in him. Christ Jesus is returning soon and will set up a righteous kingdom, and it is said of him. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Oh, what a glorious day that will be when the Lord returns to set up his righteous kingdom here on earth. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. The author of Hebrews goes right back to Psalms 2 and quotes it in closing chapter 1 of this beautiful book. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This entire chapter brings to light the relationship between the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. And He is as much God as His Father. Anyone who says any different would be disagreeing with God the Father Himself. Christ truly is the exalted one who inhabits eternity and will reign forever and ever. To God be the glory. Amen. Chapter 2 after explaining who Jesus Christ is the author goes right into the subject of his great salvation and not to be neglected. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. God was gracious to offer and provide for this great salvation, so man has no excuse for neglecting it. This is a solemn warning. The big question would be why did God offer this salvation to mankind and not to angels? I believe angels had much more knowledge of God because they saw God up close and in a personal way and we are never told that they were made in the image of God, but mankind was. We also have a God-awareness created into our makeup. As Romans 1 said, for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, in the book of Psalms. What is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Everything points to Jesus the author and finisher of our salvation. Because of how salvation was obtained it brings glory to his name. To do this, he had to become lower than the angels to taste death for us. With all this accomplished someday all honor will come to him, everybody will be subjected under his feet. 
but it tells us that at present we do not yet see this, but this is only for a short while, and then everything will come to light. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to bore them, brothers, saying. I will tell of your name to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again. I will put my trust in him. And again. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Maybe you never thought of these words, but the expression here is a family relationship in God's family. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. Make one think of how Christ prayed for us back in John's Gospel. His prayer was like this, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his followers, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then later on he said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. All that belongs to the Lord will someday see his glory in its fullness. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he has to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our Lord, our God, our Saviour came down from heaven, became a man, took on flesh and blood for the sole purpose of dying in our place for our sin. This great salvation took care of all our enemies and that included the devil and even death itself. The death of Jesus Christ means the death of death itself. The death of death in the death of Jesus Christ also means victory over death for those who trust in Christ as their God and Savior. Chapter 3 As we move on we will see how the author presents Jesus as so much greater than all. He starts by comparing him to Moses of the Old Testament, one of the great Jewish heroes. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are now to consider Jesus. He is called an apostle and high priest of our confession, or our faith. He was the faithful one, he did everything the Father asked him to do he was faithful unto death, even the death of the cross. The first person the Holy Spirit compares him to is Moses. Why Moses? Maybe because he was the first patriarch from the Old Testament. No matter who we would compare him to, he is so much greater. We are told the reason, 
it is because the builder of all things is greater than anything built. We all were created by God, and Jesus Christ is God and as such, he is greater than Moses and every other creature. If a rich man has a servant, and he put this servant over his entire house, and this servant does a good job, he is considered a great servant, but in the case of Jesus, his greatness was so much higher because Moses was servanthood was to testify or show us things that were to be spoken later. The house that he would be over was God's house, and God's house is made up of living stones, which we are part of. Yes, we are the house of God. The author again quotes the Old Testament when speaking of God's rest. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your fathers put me to the test. And saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation. And said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. To understand what all this is saying, we must go back to the time spoken of and look at what transpired. If you are one reading this and you are hearing what God is saying in your heart, please do not harden your hearts like those that were brought out of bondage, saved from their enemies at the Red Sea, lead through the wilderness, taken care of by God and would have been led into the promised land. The rest that is spoken of here. But because of their rebellion when going through the trials of life, they hardened their hearts and went astray. They never entered God's rest, and they will taste the wrath of God instead. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them. This was a warning for all of us to consider. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said. Today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Romans 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In the above scripture, it speaks of an unbelieving heart. You see, we can confess with our mouths but still have an unbelieving heart just like the children of Israel of old that were spoken of in this scripture. We are to exhort one another every day, and that is what I am doing here. We don't know how many days we have left, so the Holy Spirit adds, as long as it is called today. What causes the heart to harden is the deceitfulness of sin and every one of us deal with sin in our lives on a daily basis, in fact, every minute of every day we are bombarded by sin. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is a hard scripture to understand because it is speaking about God's people. God called out the Israelites from Egypt by Moses, and they were the ones that provoked God for forty years. These people saw the mighty hand of God at work and yet they were the ones whose bodies fell in the wilderness. 
these are the same ones who God swore that they would not enter his rest because of their disobedience. This was all because of their unbelieving hearts. What a warning for us. His word shall not fail you he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Chapter 4 We continue on the subject of entering God's rest. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. God's promise of entering his rest still stands before us so do not fear that there is not a chance of entering it. When we read scripture we must look at words like, us, and them. Then we must ask the question who are them? We already know it is speaking of us. Following the context of what we have just read to them, is speaking of the Jews from the Old Testament. We have the same message they received, the good news. We are united by faith with those who listened, not with those who didn't listen. There is a difference between a believer and an unbeliever, whether Jew or Gentile. There are only two kinds of people in the world, believers and non-believers. It is only the believers that enter that rest. God says this about the unbeliever, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There is a little switch here, from speaking of entering God's rest to speaking of God's rest in creation. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said. They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There is a lot of things in this scripture that is repeated, which should make us ask why. When we have repetitiveness in scripture it is important for us to pay close attention to what is being repeated. There were many Israelites in the Old Testament that failed to enter God's rest so this warning is repeated in hopes that we understand how easy sin keeps us from entering. As we move forward from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible to the writings of David, we see that even in his writings he quotes the earlier book. We now have mention of a certain day. What day is this? it is today. Later we will be told that today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, but today. We have no promise of tomorrow. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Going back to the sixth book of the Bible, Joshua, where we have another type of Christ in the person of Joshua, 
One of the reasons the Holy Spirit had David mention the warning about hearing God's voice was because of what we read at the very beginning of this book. God is speaking to us by his Son, and they being another day. Going back to the Sabbath rest for the people of God, which is the true rest of God. God had rested from his work of creation back in Genesis, but now he has finished his work in salvation we can rest in the fact that God has taken care of everything that is needed for us to enter his rest. When it speaks of us striving to enter this rest, is it speaking of us working? I don't believe this striving is working, but striving in trusting. If we don't believe God's words and what he has already done, then we fall by the same disobedience of others who did not trust in God's good news of his son doing all the work for us. We know this to be true, because of the power in God's word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Only God can look into the heart of man. There is nothing hidden from his sight. God knows all and sees all. He knows every intent of our hearts. Like it concludes, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This chapter ends by looking at Jesus as our great high priest. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we compare Jesus, our great high priest with a high priest from the Leviticus priesthood we see that we have a greater high priest who can sympathize with our, fleshly, weaknesses in every way, but without sin. He was tempted as we are, and we see this when he was tempted by Satan as recorded in the Gospels. Because of Jesus being our high priest he has opened the way for us to draw near to the throne of grace, and in doing so we can get all the help we need for any temptation we may face. Prayer is such a powerful thing, we need to ask ourselves why we don't use it more? Chapter 5 For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. If we were to go back and do a study on the Leviticus priesthood we would learn that it was only the Levites that were priests and then only one man was chosen from among them to be appointed high priest to act on behalf of all others for all the different tribes among the Israelites. He was the one that would offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. The big difference between Jesus Christ our high priest and the high priest of the old covenant is that the high priest back then had to offer sacrifice for his own sins as he had to do for the people he served. No one took upon himself this duty, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Christ was chosen by God the Father and was exalted to be a high priest. This was the very one who said, 
you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. This is the first mention of Melchizedek. We will learn more about this man as we go on in our study in Hebrews, but still looking at Jesus our high priest it is said. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, even before he went to the cross and offered up his body as the Lamb of God to take away our sins, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. It is said that Jesus cried at the tomb of Lazarus but it is recorded here that he cried to his father. Jesus Christ was every bit as human as we because he had to learn obedience and he learned it through suffering. Because of his total obedience to his father, he became the source of eternal salvation to all of us who believe and obey his word. At this point in the book of Hebrews, we move away from the Leviticus priesthood and move on to the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We now have a warning against apostasy. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The author of Hebrews offers up a rebuke because of our dull hearing. Yes, we can all become dull of hearing what God's word is trying to tell us. Because of dull hearing, one becomes slow at learning the deeper things of God. Some should be teachers but are only able to drink in the basic principles of the oracles of God. Like an infant being able to only drink milk and not eat solid food. We could refer to them as babes in Christ and not mature Christians. At this point, we need to examine ourselves to see where we are in our Christian life. Chapter 6 Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Where chapter 5 ends, chapter 6 picks up, wanting us to move on into maturity in our Christian walk and leaving the elementary doctrine behind us. If we have truly repented of all our dead works there is no need to start all over again by laying again a foundation of repentance. The author goes on to name some of the foundational things like instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, 
the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What is meant by it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a warning against apostasy. At this point, it would be a good idea to understand what is meant by apostasy. The term apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia, pyomicron sigma tau alpha sigma alpha, meaning defection, departure, revolt or rebellion. We need to look at this scripture in context, in fact, we need to look at it in a historical sense and in a textual sense. We need to ask and answer the question, who is meant by those? Without going into much detail, I would say to who the epistle was first addressed. This would be the Jewish Christians. I believe that no scripture contradicts itself, so we must look at it in light of other scripture. Take for example James 5 1920. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. With this verse in mind, we can now look at the textual context. Because James said that, anyone among you, meaning Christians who wander away, and it is possible to bring them back, then in Hebrews, we have to possible answers to the question of, who is meant by those? Were they non-Christians, maybe Jewish Christians still following Judaism, or were they true Christian? In the search for the right answer, I found these answers. The first conclusion is that Hebrews 6-6 speaks in a very specific situation about a specific, even unique sin of apostasy. No one today can crucify Christ for the second time, as they were in danger of doing. The unique character of this action means that we should not apply what is said about this apostasy to every instance of someone falling away from the faith. Hebrews 6-6 does not state a general rule that conversion is impossible for someone who abandons the faith. The second conclusion is that the horrible sin of crucifying Christ again is in line with the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. The common element is that aspect of knowing and understanding the grace of God in Christ, and yet choosing against it. It is the sin of covenant people deliberately rejecting what God says and what he gives with Christ. If God meets such sin with his covenant wrath, this cannot be called a lack of love. God is a God of wrath. When his promising words of love in Christ, his Son, are rejected? We now change from the negative to the positive. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It appears that the audience has changed. We draw this conclusion from the words, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We are moving from those to your case. It is not hard to understand that the author is now referring to those whose work is showing love to the name of his son Jesus Christ. The author also has a desire for them to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. This is so they do not get sluggish, 
but imitators of those, who I believe are the Old Testament saints, to through faith and patience inherit the promises given in their lifetime. They and we are given the certainty of God's promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Some key points to note here. First, by mentioning Abraham we can be assured that in prior verses those who were being referred to were the Old Testament Jews. These are the ones that through Abraham the promises were given. We can be sure of these promises because God bases all this on the fact that he swears by his unchangeable character. I have always loved this one line of scripture, it is impossible for God to lie. Everything that God has promised will come to pass. All our hope is built on this fact. And our high priest, Jesus Christ is the one who has gone as a forerunner on our behalf and his office as our great high priest is based on the eternal priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 We are now presented with more details on the priestly order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God he continues a priest forever. In the Old Testament, we are not told much about Melchizedek, and I believe this was because the Holy Spirit wanted to show that Jesus Christ was given an eternal priesthood. We see this because of this scripture in the book of Hebrews. We do get the fact that Melchizedek was, king of Salem, making him both king and priest. And his office as a priest was to the most high God, or as my computer keeps wanting to correct my typing as highest God. Jesus Christ holds three offices, prophet, priest, and king. I will cover the point about Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything in a moment, but first, look at the meaning of the name Melchizedek. He was a king of righteousness, king of Salem, and the king of peace. And because the Holy Spirit withheld any more information we are told he is without father or mother or any genealogy that is recorded in the Old Testament. This was so the Holy Spirit could say he resembled the Son of God and that his priestly office will continue forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, 
by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Getting back to the fact that Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, and Abraham being the father of Levi where the Leviticus priesthood came from add to the fact that Jesus' priesthood was so much higher than the Leviticus priesthood and this making him even higher than the law which required the giving of tithes of a tenth. This line that is recorded here show the greatness of Jesus Christ. But this man, referring to Jesus by way of Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It goes on to say, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. All of this boils down to this fact, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We continue by comparing the Lord to Melchizedek. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. If we were to do a study in the priestly order in the Old Testament we would get a better understanding of what is being implied here. Perfection never came by the Leviticus priesthood. All it did was put people under the law. And if the Leviticus priesthood the perfect way then there would be no need for another priest to arise. The Lord came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We also see from this scripture that the Lord was descended from Judah and nowhere in the Old Testament does it show a connection with the tribe of Levi and a connection with its priestly order. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. We have even more evidence to the fact that Melchizedek's priestly order was not based on any legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but we are told that it was by the power of an indestructible life. So it is quoted from Psalms 110 to 4 You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn. And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Continuing along the same lines of comparing the two priestly orders we see the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness speaking of the Leviticus priesthood which was from the law and that it made nothing perfect by its repetitive sacrifices, but the new priestly order, which the Lord is our high priest and giving us a way to draw near to God. And all this without an oath, because this new priestly order was made without oath and not like the one given to the Levites. And again the author quotes Psalms 110-4. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant.
the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This priesthood is so much better because we have a guarantee. After all, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. All the Levites who were priests died and so their priesthood ended, but our Lord holds a permanent priesthood that will continue forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. More ways Jesus Christ is a better priest is his holiness, his innocence. And he is unstained and separated from sinners, as we remain in this sinful world, he is exalted above the heavens. And he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins because he was sinless, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. This was all accomplished when he offered up himself on the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We end this chapter with these words, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8 The Bible is full of covenants but here in Hebrews, we have Jesus as our high priest as a better covenant. Chapter 8 puts more light on what we just covered in chapter 7. It starts by saying. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Again, if we were to study the Leviticus priesthood in the Old Testament we would see that the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest and he could only go in once a year and only after he made a sacrifice for his own sin. But our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is a minister in the holy places, and not is a tent made and set up with human hands. He is in the true tent and the Holy of Holies is God's throne room. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The duty of the priest in the Old Testament was to offer gifts and sacrifices. This means he had to offer up something for himself. All this was according to the law that was given to Moses. The reason that Moses needed to follow God's instruction to the letter of the law was it was a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The reason Moses was to follow the pattern laid out by God was that the pattern was showing us the ministry of Christ. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. 
for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The tent and everything connected to it, and including the priesthood was inferior to Christ and the new covenant. The old covenant is being replaced by the new. This would not have been so if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, or new covenant. God had found fault with them, the Israelites, when he said in the Old Testament, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Judah is the tribe that our Lord was descended from. This new covenant was not like the one God made with their Jewish fathers on the day when he took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. Now here is the reason this had to be done. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. Again, this is a quote from the Old Testament and we as Gentiles can apply this to ourselves at our conversion. I will put my laws into their minds. And write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach, each one his neighbor. And each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We have here a prophecy for the coming millennium kingdom at the end of this chapter. The day is coming when everyone will know the Lord, and we are told from the least to the greatest shall know him. My thoughts on this are that it is speaking of the nation of Israel. I base this on the fact it states, each one his brother, and I will remember their sins no more. I say this because I am trying to keep this in context. The first covenant was made with the house of Israel but now it is obsolete. Chapter 9 This study in Hebrews is tied together with the Old Testament scriptures on the making and setting up of the tent of meeting and all the part of it. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and air and staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. 
but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. I quote this first part of this chapter as a whole because it is comparing the first with the second covenant, and it is showing us some wonderful truths. It is dealing with worship and the things that go along with it. Because of the book of Hebrews, we have the reason for the makeup of the tent of meeting. The two parts are called the holy place and behind the second curtain was called the most holy place. We won't go into detail on all that is mentioned here but will say they have a spiritual meaning in the heavenly realm. We cannot see into the unseen so God is giving us something that we can see and is telling us that all that was laid out in the old is going on spiritually in the new. It is no different than when we were told that no man has seen God, but then we are told that Christ is the express image of the invisible God. Even Christ said if you have seen me you have seen the Father. I will briefly mention a few items here. The gold shows us the deity of God, the manna shows us that Christ is the true bread that came down from heaven. Air and staff that budded, is showing us the resurrection, and tablets of the covenant are Christ the fulfillment of the law. There are others but this should show how the old was pictured in the new covenant. Now we come to the differences. In the old, the priest went in regularly into the first section to perform their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself. I want you to take note and remember what is said next because we will refer back to this when we come to chapter 10. It says the blood was for unintentional sins of the people. Unintentional will become important later on in our study. In the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Again, this is symbolic for the present age. Everything that is talked about in this section of scripture cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. All these things are only regulations, but the key is, until the time of reformation, or until the redemption through the blood of Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Moving away from the old and coming to the new covenant, we see the greater and more perfect tent, which is a picture of Christ, our great high priest. The tent on earth was made with hands. But as far as Christ as our tent of worship it was not made with hands, that is not of this creation. The Old Testament priest had to do this over and over again, but he, Christ entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood. This now secures an eternal redemption for all who trust in this fact. The whole system of worship under the Old Covenant was temporary and just foreshadowed the New Covenant in the blood of Christ. This is now just the opposite of not having a clean conscience before God. Because of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself, the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God, and thus purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A mediator is someone who comes between, and in the case of Christ coming between the old and the new covenant, and he did it by dying on the cross as an eternal sacrifice which gives us the promise of the eternal inheritance, redeeming us from the transgressions that were committed under the law of the first covenant. It also shows us that Christ stands between us and God the Father. We know that God can't come in the presence of sin so Christ the righteous needs to stand between. For where our will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For our will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. When we think about an inheritance it makes one think of a rich relative dying and leaving behind some money that is received by those mentioned in the will. That is what this is talking about but not money but eternal salvation is to be had. All this was established by death making the will in force. Christ died so we could inherit eternal life. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Under the old covenant, it was also by the shedding of blood and the blood being applied on everything pertaining to the tent of worship. This was done to purify the worship and those worshipping, so bringing about the fact that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. A short while ago I wrote a paper on the unseen world, and this is just another part of that world. We have a copy of things that are seen to help us in understanding the things we cannot see in the heavenlies themselves. The tent of worship was made with hands and the priest enter it to offer up sacrifices, but Christ has entered heaven itself. The tent of worship was only the copy. The priest went before the mercy seat, which was a copy, but Christ appears in the presence of God on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We know from the Old Testament that the priest had to keep doing this right over and over again, but not so with Christ. This is because he was the perfect blood sacrifice that God required to take away our sin. This is never to be repeated. Like he said when on the cross, it is finished. I have a cross above my door to my house with these words. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Listen close to these words, if you have not put your trust in God's provided sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice, his son, then it is appointed for you to die once and after face the judgment for your own sin.
but before you die, if you have not already done so, you can accept this fact, that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and will appear a second time, not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you have accepted God's sacrifice then you will share in the joy of Christ's return, which will be very soon. Chapter 10 This chapter carries on with the same theme of Christ's sacrifice once for all. For since the Lord is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In the last chapter we were looking at copies of things but now we are looking at the shadow. A shadow is different in a copy, as we all should know. Paul tells us in the book of Romans chapter 7, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The operation of the law, as Paul said here is a killer. This statement sheds light on this scripture in Hebrews. The law in itself condemns us to death because we all have broken the law. So here in Hebrews we are told that under the old covenant of offering up sacrifices every year cannot take away sin, otherwise they would not have ceased. And we would no longer have any consciousness of sins. And we know that in these sacrifices there is a reminder of our sins. We see this in Paul's remarks in Romans. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Before moving on I would like to talk about the word, shadow. Yesterday, which was Sunday, the Lord's Day and the Day of Worship. I talked about this word and going back to the book of Psalms and Psalm 25 which is about the great shepherd and in the fourth verse, it talked about us walking through the shadow of death. Not death itself, but just the shadow of it. The thought came to my mind, did our Lord just walk through the shadow or did he go through death itself? To answer this question I needed to know what death is. According to scripture, spiritual death is absent from the presence of God, being in spiritual darkness. At the moment that Christ died on the cross with all our sin heaped upon him, he cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that very moment, God the Father had to turn his back on his Son, because of our sin, and it was the very moment that Christ died for us. It wasn't the shadow of death that he walked through, but death itself. He tasted a full load of death so we do not have to. We just walk through its shadow, not death. Praise God for that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This was God's plan all along, even before the world was created. From eternity past it was in God's heart, and this was because of love. God could not have done anything differently because God is love. It is the essence of who he is. God took no pleasure in all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but Christ took pleasure in doing the Father's will. 
and we know that he knew what he had to do and he knew it right from the beginning of time and we get this from what he said here. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The book is the Bible that we are studying right now. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, the author tells us God had no pleasure in the sacrifices of old, and the reason he could take pleasure in Christ's sacrifice is that it could do away with the practice of doing this under the law and that in Christ's sacrifice it brings us back to God and back into fellowship with him. It has been made possible by the shedding of blood, Christ's blood. We have been sanctified through this offering. In other words, we are set apart for God because all our sins have been forgiven. Again we need to praise God for this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here we see the difference between the old and the new covenants. In the old system of sacrifices, it had to be repeated over and over again and these sacrifices could never take away sins. So the question is why did they have to be done? Every one of them was pointing to the last one that had to be offered. As John, the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away sin, proving that this was the ultimate sacrifice. We are told that by this single offering he has completed perfection for all time and this is done by sanctifying, setting us apart from the unbelieving world for his purpose. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. And write them on their minds. Then he adds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Think back before you were a Christian if you were saved later in life like I was. Being saved at 40 I can remember not knowing God or anything from his word the Bible. Here is how I know I am part of this new covenant even if I am not a Jew. He put his law on my heart and have written them in my mind, and then he tells me that in will remember no more my sins and lawless deeds. He said, I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, and if I confess my sins he is just to forgive me my trespass. And there is much more scripture that he opened my eyes to. He has put his spirit within me and his spirit witness with my spirit that all these things are true. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near.
because of this new covenant we now have the confidence to approach God by the blood of Jesus. And yes, this is the new and living way that our Lord has opened for us. When he died on the cross the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. This point is very important, from the top, which shows us that it was God doing the tearing not man. So it was God that opened the way so let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We can do this because we have a clean conscience and have been washed with pure water of the word of God. Let us not waver for he who promised is faithful. We can trust him and his word. The reason I want to keep writing about the things of God is to stir up the family of God to love and to do good works, and not to neglect to meet together, as it says here, as is the habit of some. Yes, we are to encourage one another. And the day that is drawing near is the coming of the Lord. And from what I see happening in the world today, I believe that day is very close. Back in the last chapter, I asked you to keep in mind the fact of unintentional sins and intentional sins. Well, in this next section of scripture I believe we will be dealing with this fact, so let us move on. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The word that jumps out at me is deliberately, and fits in with the intentional sin we spoke of in the last chapter. There are people in the world today, Jews and Gentiles alike that will deliberately or intentionally reject the truth of God's word, and I believe this is what we are dealing with here. Just a couple of weeks ago I recorded a message by Charlie Pfizer on intentional and unintentional sin that was very good. I have the message on my YouTube channel if you would like to listen to it. In fact, I would recommend you do so. Here is the link to it. www.youtube.com web link. If it doesn't work, just copy and paste it into your browser URL address bar. I have had people say this scripture is talking about God's elect. Remember this book's title is Hebrews. I believe that the author is at this point speaking to the Jewish people, in particular, both believing and unbelieving Jews. But again, these are my beliefs. The statement for we know him. The word we, here, applies to all who know him. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised. Again, this statement, but recall the former days, after some Jews believed that Jesus was the Messiah and was enlightened to this fact, started to endure hard struggle with sufferings. This was brought about because of the Jewish religious leaders. 
the Jewish Christians were showing compassion for some of their Gentile brothers who were being put in prison, and because of this they joyfully accepted their suffering for doing this. There will be a reward for those who suffered for Christ and those who belong to him. 4. Yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back. My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The end of this chapter sheds some light on the entire chapter with the words, but we are not of those who shrink back. This makes the distinction between we, and those. To really understand this book, we should be asking why it was written. I believe that some of the believing Jews were starting to turn back to Judaism and were putting themselves back under the law. So the author who wrote this book was trying to show them that going back to the old covenant was wrong. Why would you go back to something that was pointing to a better way? So he ends this chapter with the words, those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So ending with those who have faith in moves right into the faith chapter which is our next chapter. Chapter 11. The faith chapter. We start by defining what faith is. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The last paper I did before starting this one was entitled, Looking into the Unseen World. It was a three chapter paper and I have it in a playlist on my YouTube channel. If you are interested in reading it here is the link to the playlist. www.youtube.com web link. The reason I am mentioning it here is that it pertains to faith. The first line in this chapter tells us this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and conviction of things not seen. This is true faith, and now we will get some examples of this faith in action. Instead of making comments on all the faith heroes, let us look at them all together in this chapter. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. After going through all the faith heroes the author goes on to say, and what more shall I say? And then he makes a brief mention of a few more faith heroes and if he was to continue I believe this book would be much much longer. Chapter 12 We started this book by showing how much better Christ is to everything and everybody, and as we are getting close to the end of this book we see Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Everything is from God even our faith is a gift that comes down from above. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As examples of all the faith heroes from chapter 11, cloud of witnesses, we need to set aside everything that hinders our walk with the Lord. Elsewhere in scripture, it tells us all the dangers of sin in our lives. Sin that clings so close, like a runner in a race, we are told to run with endurance the race that is set before us. The key to a victorious race is to set your eyes on the goal, and that goal is Jesus, the founder, and perfecter of our faith. If we are looking to Jesus we will see the one who with the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is our example to follow. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? When you are in a race you tend to grow weary that is why we are to consider him who endured from the hands of sinners such hostility, and if we look at what he endured for us it should help us not to grow weary or faint-hearted. Remember we need to resist sin every day, but we have not done so, to the shedding of blood like Christ had to do. Are we not also referred to as sons? So if we are sons, true sons we will see the chastising of the Lord. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. If you fall into sin and you see the disciplining hand of the Lord then know this, he loves you and so he is looking out for your best interest and well-being. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I believe we can all understand what this is saying. I know I can. Growing up my earthly father had to discipline me more than I wanted to be disciplined. And I knew that my father loved me or he wouldn't have done this. So much more my heavenly father loves me, so why would I not believe he wouldn't discipline me? Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Any time we see the word, therefore, we see the cause and effect. It is saying, because of what we just read do these things. So this section of scripture is telling us what to do because of our heavenly father disciplining me practice lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. 
we do these things so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. It goes on to tell us not to fail to obtain the grace from God to be able to perform all we need, and not to become defiled. At the end of these thoughts, the author uses the example of Esau, giving up his inheritance, his birthright. The last part of this chapter will now talk about a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are told. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Again this is right out of the Old Testament when Moses was given the law, the Old Covenant, there was fear and no way to approach, for they could not endure the order that was given, and then it even said, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. This truly was terrifying. In fact, Moses even said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But with the new covenant, it is so much different. None of our inheritance is earthly but heavenly, Mount Zion or Calvary and the new heavenly Jerusalem that will come down from heaven and in the presence of the angels in a festal gathering along with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and gathered around the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel being the first one to offer a blood sacrifice to point to the precious Lamb of God who takes away our sin all the way back to Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As we close this chapter we are presented with a warning. When Moses was given the law and the scene that was told us of the blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the tempest and the thunderings and lightings that was present and there was no escape when they refuse him who was speaking, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. Yet once more, indicates that removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. All this reminds me of what Peter tells us. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Chapter 13 as we come to the last chapter in this book and the last message before the benediction and final greetings we are presented with the sacrifices pleasing to God. Let brotherly love continue.
do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This first verse of this chapter is something that I always keep on my mind when confronting a stranger. I can never be sure if I am entertaining an angel unaware. We are to remember those who are in prison. Back a few years I had a jail ministry and I found that there was always an interest in studying the Bible. Some did it just to have something to do but I found there was an interest by some. We never know when or on whom the Spirit of God will work, so we need to remember those in prison. We do not save anyone, we are just told to be witnesses to the gospel. This is in words or actions. Now as long as we are still in the body we are to live a holy life and this includes being free from the love of money and to be content with what God has given us. Remember he will always take care of you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. At this point, the author gives us some good advice. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. This is why God has given spiritual gifts to some for this reason, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. We have an altar that is different from the one used by the priest of the old covenant, and they have no right to eat of the offering. If you go back and read about the bodies of those animals that were to be burned outside the camp. This was a picture of Christ because we are told. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This had to be done this way to sanctify us through his own blood. Now we need to continue in this world, outside the camp, and bear the reproach and endure, as Christian, or like I like to say, Christ wants.
No matter what the world throws at us, we need to endure as Christ did. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. God has set leaders over us as we saw when we looked at the gifts. We are to obey and submit to them. Their responsibility is to keep watch over our souls. I am an elder in the assembly I attend, and as such I will have to give an account on being given this responsibility. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The author now asks for prayer, and to pray that they have a clear conscience, and to desire to act honorably in all things. I find this statement interesting because it raises the question, who is the us, and the we, in this request? I believe the answer is apostles. Yes, I believe it was an apostle who wrote this epistle. My thought is that the author's identity was kept from the readers for a reason. Many have thought that the author was the Apostle Paul and I believe that they might be right. My feelings are that since Paul was an Apostle to the Gentile the authorship was not disclosed on the book to the Hebrew believers. The Benediction Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Even from the benediction, we can gain knowledge from God. There has been the question, did God the Father or did Jesus have the power to raise Jesus from the dead? Jesus said talking about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So when it said, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, it is referring to God the Son, who is the God of peace. The entire book of Hebrews is about Jesus in every way. This is hard for every Christian to understand because it is one of the deep things of God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The final greeting speaks for itself. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This final greeting adds to my belief that Paul was the author. I hope you enjoyed going through the book of Hebrews with me.